In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the True Life Podcast. We are here with an amazing individual, the author of a book called No Absolutes, Benjamin George. We're meeting for the first time. However, after reading your book, I feel like we have a real connection. Can you introduce yourself a little bit? Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Benjamin George. I've, I've never intended to be uh, writing philosophy books or anything like that. It just kind of happened. Um, I kind of started my journey as an entrepreneur and kind of have been ever since. Uh, so the the whole writing thing kind of came as a, a side note, um, just based upon my experiences and adventures and research and all of those things. Uh, and here we are. So I, I actually ended up writing this four years ago and I have a bad habit of being about four years too early on, on quite a few things. Um, so it's it's a pleasure and an honor to uh, actually be able to get down or sit down and talk to you. Yeah, it's it's so weird and beautiful how the world or the consciousness or some force bigger than us brings us together. This book called No Absolutes, A Framework for Life. I, I want to read the introduction so people can get an understanding of what it is the book's about, and who you are as a person, and some of the ideas we're going to discuss. So without any further ado, here we go. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what the book looks like, if you can see it here, no absolutes. And let's start with this introduction here. What does it mean to be alive, to be human, to be you? A form of this question finds itself at the root of seemingly every aspect of society and life throughout our history. The responses to this question have propelled us to many seemingly great and terrifying levels and feats. It is one of the main motivators of communities, religions, political systems, and nations. It defines our journey through life at a foundational level and influences every moment of existence. Yet for all our responses to the question, we remain rudderless, divided, and in a precarious positions at seemingly all levels of society everywhere we turn. Why? Why are these failures, or I'm sorry, are these failures a feature of humanity? Is history repeating itself? Punishment from a magic sky wizard? Gods? Aliens? Let me pause right there for a minute because there's just so much in that whole little that whole little section right there. What does it mean to be alive, to be human, to be you? Is that what kind of got you started on this journey? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I could take it a little bit back. Um, I, I really started the journey when I was younger. I had a tragedy in my young life. And then uh, 16 years old, I, you know, looked around and I was disheartened by the responses I received. Uh, I, so, you know, I just kind of picked up and did my own thing. And I was really into computers at the time. So I became a tech guy, um, you know, was building websites for people when the dot-com boom happened. Uh, and then, you know, was rudderless because I was just a young man and uh, 
took myself up, managed to make it to 25 and found some meditation and some experiences. And I was, and then I ended up in Central and South America for six years on a journey. Um, and, you know, those experiences, just seeing people in, you know, in completely different environments, um, going into some of the most dangerous places in the world on invitation, just because I met people and connected with people at a people level. Uh, and just seeing all these wonderful aspects of community and society and and life that people were having beyond the greater beyond the greater picture of things, which is usually broadcasted, and that's what most people kind of you know we read the headlines and we ascribe to these things, and it's like, well, I wonder what else is different, and what else could be, and so it's just been a continual path for me of trying to and succeeding in a lot of in a lot of regards and failing in a lot of regards uh, of just finding that path of what's my path. And then once I did, uh, I was invigorated. I was, I was, I, I found joy and, you know, and in that experience, I said, well, gosh, if it works for me, could it work for somebody else? And that kind of, that's kind of the foundation of it. Oh, it's beautiful. It, it never ceases to amaze me. So many interesting people that I speak with, their journey begins with tragedy. And it's almost like the deeper and more powerful, it makes me want to cry, but the more horrific the tragedy, the bigger the picture becomes for you to see. And people that make it through tragedy are usually people, like, I feel like you're chosen. And I, I hope people that are listening to this and, and people that see this understand if a great tragedy has happened in your life, it's because the world loves you enough to say, hey, it's going to shove you off this path and say, look over there. There's something bigger. There's something better. And for those experiencing tragedy, it usually leads to a better life if you're willing to do the work and you're willing to see that there's something bigger out there calling to you. That's That seems to me the purpose of tragedy. And I, it, it never um, – yeah. yeah. No, I would agree with you. Uh, it's really interesting. You know, nobody ever wants to wish tragedy upon anyone Right. I mean, I mean, that's just silly. Uh, but at the same time, we have how many numerous instances of people who've gone through very traumatic times and stood on the other side as, you know, uh, the shoulders of the giants that we stand on in society today. And, and, you know, again, you don't want to wish it on anybody, but this is part of the foundation of the book was how could you achieve that without just having amount of a massive amount of tra tragedy in your life? I mean, how can we get there otherwise? Uh, and can't. I think there is a path. I think there is a path for that. Yeah, it, I would agree. I, I think that, um, you know, how else can you get to know absolutes? Like you have to do some rigorous thinking about life. And the only way you can do that is if you're not allowed to follow the path that's already been worn. Right. When I think of no absolutes, I think of this beautiful trail on a mountain covered by this different kind of fauna. And you can hear these animals and no one wants to go off to the side, but they're scared. But if you look, you can see little banners or someone's tied a little ribbon over there. Like, hey, there might be something over there, you know. Oh, and yeah. I feel like that's kind of what this book is. Like this book is a framework that allows people to see at least the hints of some other trails out there. And it invites them to go and explore. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and that was part of the intention. Um, I like to describe it as, you know, the desert of absolutes. I think a lot of people are walking around the sand. They're drawing lines in the sand. Um, you know, those are their tribes. Those are their political ideologies. Those are, you know, the religious that, religions that they grew up in. Those are all these things that people tell them they're supposed to think. And when you when you're drawing lines in the sand yeah you might make some fancy artwork from time to time but you're just drawing lines in the sand and as, as long as you're stuck in that desert uh you don't see the mountains you don't you don't see the ribbons the trail you don't you don't even hear the animals sometimes and you know being able to find that path being able to you know detach yourself from all of the crazy and have a system that says, hey, actually, you know, I don't have to subscribe to this philosophy, ideology, whatever it is, because the reality of the situation is 
nobody knows. And anybody who proclaims that they actually have all of the answers, I would I would be happy to debate them, <laughs> first of all. Uh, but secondly, I mean, you know, the reality of the situation is that in order to have all of the answers, you would have to have access to all of the information and all of the events and experiences that have ever happened, all the feelings, all of the emotions. And you would have to have some ability to correlate those and digest them into something that was knowledge, as we call it. And we can have bits of knowledge, but they aren't absolute truths. They aren't, they aren't these, you know, and, and while people want to ascribe to absolute truths, you're just drawing lines in the sand again, and you're missing the perspective of the mountain. Yeah. You know, and it seems like our leaders today have taken a note from the Nazca lines and drawn huge lines in the sand. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Nice reference. <laughs> it's true. I Do you, let me ask you this. Do you hold, it seems to me right now that we, while the world in which we live seems to be so topsy-turvy and it seems there's all this chaos, it seems to me like a brand new birth is happening. When I think of birth, and for those of us who have had, have been lucky enough to see the miracle of childbirth, it looks like a disaster. There's blood everywhere, and like, oh my God, people are ripped open, and there's doctors, and there's dee, 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 stuff beeping. You're like, oh man. And that's why they call it the miracle of childbirth. Like, you, It looks like someone's dying, and there's a real chance that that can happen. But it seems to me that that's where we are right now, as a species and as a people and as a country, it's like we are in the midst of a new birth and there's so much opportunity and there's so like there no absolutes, the framework for life. It, it really like a lot of other cool people and a lot of other things out there right now. I think it is the sign pointing towards a trailhead of opportunity. And like that, that's where we are. Do you, do you see the world as being reborn and being remade right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, everything is breaking at scale, right? All of these systems, all of these institutions, all of these ideas, these are things are breaking at the scale of, well, now we're all connected. The internet came around and all of these things were fine up to a point, but now we have a global society. And these things are, you know, our, our institutional systems, you know, the way we've done things are just broken at these larger scales. Uh, and whenever something's broken, it's always the, the sign of a new beginning. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, you know, I, I don't know which direction you want to go for this show, but, you know, when you start going into ancient religions and philosophies and, you know, all of our anthropology, um, it, these things have been talked about before by most of the ancient peoples of our world or what we call ancient at least is what we're taught in the school system these days um and you know one of the you brought up the rebirthing of the world are you familiar with like uh, the yuga cycle a, a little bit can you describe to our listeners what that is oh i am <laughs> going to get lambasted um <laughs> uh well, the Yuga cycle, I'll, I'll just be as 10,000 foot as yeah, I yeah. Um, it, It's essentially a, a cycle that happens on this planet, and, it, and it's a cataclysm and rebirth of society. Um, I, I, I've read different scholars who think that different cycles are this time. I think a lot of them attribute it. The last, and I might be mistaken, is that we're in Kali Yuga. Um, and then the idea is, is that there is some sort of cyclical disaster on this planet that kind of reshapes and rebirths humanity um and you know from a i, I i'm kind of more of a scientist than i ever was anything in a, in a researcher and when you look at other evidence for that we have things you know that suggest that oh wow there's a lot more to this than just some writings in a book you know, we have geological evidence now and we have, you know, things like Gobekli Tepe and Kuran Tepe and we have all these sites across the world that are now dating to 11, 12,000, 13,000 years ago. And I suspect we'll find uh, numerous more as, as we continue down the path. But the idea that, you know, we're some six, 7,000 year old society and we are it, 
uh, in the grand scheme of how we measure things and you know how old we think things are from a scientific perspective, there's something to be left in the middle there. It doesn't seem to all add up. Um, and you know you have you have like a, you, we have Darwin's evolutionary theory, um, and there's a lot in I'm a fan of evolutionary biology. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that because we are, you know, there's a lot to be said about how our environment shapes us, especially over a given period of time. But then at the same time, we have, you know, uh, linguistic records and DNA records that have really different kind of overall suggestions of this timeline. Uh, so I think to your, to your question is, are we in a, in the, a part of the cycle? I, I think I, absolutely we are um do we understand this cycle i think we're getting close <laughs> yeah i i agree 100 percent, and i think that we are beginning to think for the first time like we're beginning to break out I, I always describe it to like the same way that a silkworm spins a web and gets caught in it and creates this cocoon or this chrysalis and it, it just spins this world around. Like, so too do we, so too have we spun this chrysalis and we're emerging as this new form. And we're starting to go, whoa, look at these wings. Look at that. What, what is this? What's going to happen here? I think that scares a lot of people. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, to that exact point, look at the technology we're sitting on. Right? You know, uh, we're able to have this communication. I think you're in Hawaii. I'm in Colorado. Uh, and it's instantaneous. We're able to broadcast it to tons of people. When in our recorded history has this ever been a possibility? I mean, it hasn't. So, so that means we're going to naturally develop a, a different understanding, a different perspective. We're gonna, we're, you know, we're having this conversation. Whereas without this technology, it might not ever happen. Right? Yeah, it's like, and it's so interesting the way in which the technology allows you to find like-minded people and also ideas that challenge what you have to say. What well, in a, in a weird sort of way, those are also like-minded people. Someone that may have an opposite, but similarly strong point of view. Like that's like finding the other and that's there to help you. And Absolutely. so it's a, no, that's okay. I, I'm i uh, I wanted to talk. I have a few questions written down over here. Let me, um, oh, okay. let's <clears throat> So we talk about like the big questions and the idea of history repeating itself and a potential failure of humanity. And we have gods and aliens and artificial intelligence. Like, what do you think that these questions say about where we are, where we're going? And, and what say you about those big questions? What does it mean about us? Well, I, I think something that's fundamental to humanity is our just innate desire to explore um you know that comes in many shapes and forms uh it can be you know this a full philosophical exploration it could be you know the physical exploration but at the end of the day it's something that's you know almost as a native procreation inside of us and i think this exploration is kind of you know the necessary path that we have to walk down and yeah we're going to make mistakes we're going to flow in different directions we're going to do all of these things but this is part of that cycle of understanding knowledge rebirth and growth essentially yeah i agree i you, on the cover of this book i think that this is a pretty good jump off point to just talk a little bit about this the cube you have on here. It's almost like a uh, it's a three dimensional cube. And for those that can see it, it's not quite set up in the back back there. What do you as this symbolic representation? What does this mean to you? Well, it it was the idea was the framework, and the framework is you know for a framework uh, from my background, it was from a technical background. So if I'm going to design a system, I would create a framework of everything that the system needs to do and there would be the primary things that needed to exist for that system to operate. Uh, so the cube itself was very symbolic in that in that little space missing is that you know I as people you know go down this path, 
that missing space is going, you know, you can have all of the tools, you can have all of the teachings, you can have all of these things, but the last thing is choice. And, and if nobody's going to make the choice, then the cube will always be incomplete. But if you have that framework and the choice is just a little step, it becomes much easier to make that choice. Yeah, that's a great point. And in the book, you, you say some things about choice that I've never heard in my life before. And it, it's not only that, but some of the infographics that you have in this book are unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it really goes a long way to help have a mental picture and provide mental clarity to backed by a linguistic representation. So as we get into this later in the, for everybody listening, we're going to have much more sessions. We're doing a little intro right here, but as we move through, there's some incredible ideas represented through infographics about choice and about life and, and some other points in this book. How did you come up with these different infographics? Is that the, when you look at the situation, is that like a mental image that you have? Uh, yes. Uh, developed over a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so actually where it all started, I, I came from a much more scientific background. Um, and where it really all began was a hypothesis on the theory of information. Uh, essentially meaning that foundationally, uh, as our reality resolves, there is a field of information. And the way I kind of analogize it is you have, uh, imagine yourself in a pond and you're standing at the edge of the pond, um, you know, you're knee deep in the water and there's a boat on the water. Now the boat starts moving. If you close your eyes, because obviously you could see the boat moving with your eyes closed, but if you close your eyes, eventually you would feel the wake of the boat hitting you before you ever knew that the boat was closed. Because the further the boat was away, the more wakes it would create and the more time you would have to understand that, oh, the boat's coming at me. Oh, and then if you were had a good enough system or a good enough understanding of your environment, you would say, oh, that's a boat. And then if you even had a better understanding of that, you would be able to say, oh, that's a, a boat made out of, you know, cellulose and ligand and all these other things. And so the idea being that every action, uh, every choice we make, because as we make choices, our minds putting out free signals, uh, you know, we have all sorts of, we measure them in beta and gamma and all these different waves in the brain, but that permeates outside of us as does all of our movements and, and thereby the movements of the molecules and the atoms. And all of this flows into the potentiality for the next moment of time being reflected back to us. And it's not really a huge foreign concept. A lot of people talk about how, you know, your choices define your reality and these things, but there is a perspective when you view it as it's not just this singular thing, but this grand interwoven tapestry that there's a bit more of an understanding of, you know, what sort of role you can play in that. And it, it, because it's going to be relegated to, you know, the distance, just like you can influence your surroundings right around you. I can go ahead and pick up this paper towel over here or not. Um, but, you know, the further that goes away, that means less and less and less. Just like as you were to throw a rock into a pond, you would see the waves right in the middle be higher and higher, and then they would kind of just dissipate as it moved out from the, the source of that, that rock. So that's kind of the, the underlying foundation of where this all came from. And then as I began to explore that, uh, and you know read different papers about quantum mechanics about general relativity and about experiments being done and about people's experiences on the other side of things you know because you have you know it's hard to discount things like prayer and stuff like that and those don't usually figure into scientific models but yet if prayer was actually a physical mechanism that is generating some sort of physical phenomenon that's interacting with the rest of the physical phenomenon well then yeah it would have an effect wouldn't it and then so we have all these evidences of you know people who have committed themselves truly to with their intent to these you know mass prayer things and there are physical measurable things that are above the 
above the median, right? And so I started to look at that. And then I started to look at, okay, well, you know, what's consciousness? <laughs> and, and all of these other things. And so it was like, how does this all relate together? And it's been a continual process and it'll be a continual process. Uh, but there's a lot of very interesting evidence out there. So not only do you have prayer, but you also have things like um, back in 2012, Google's, one of their data centers, they had an algorithm that dictated how data should move through the center. Well, all of a sudden data was moving through the center at a different way, in a different way, outside of the bounds of that algorithm, but more efficient. So you have these emergent properties of reality when you have density of information. And, uh, you know, I would make the statement to argue openly uh, that consciousness is a function of a density of information in over a given space. And that's why we see consciousness in not just ourselves, but we also see a consciousness in animals. We see it, we see it all over the place in what we call life, defined as life from a biological standpoint. Um, and yet we've also observed these emergent behaviors in technical systems that we've built. Now, does that mean it's conscious? Not necessarily. It just means that consciousness is an emergent property of this. So, you know, bringing it back to the AI side, because I'm a, I do a lot with automation and artificial intelligence. You know, there was a Google engineer who just said that, you know, there was a, uh, in a, a sentient uh, yeah. chatbot or whatever, uh, Lambda or something like that. Um, you know, that's, that's a whole quagmire of, of a different rabbit hole. So I won't touch it too much. Uh, <laughs> but the idea is, is that we do have these emergent properties in the system. And we can observe them not just from our technical systems, but we observe them biologically. We observe them, you know, even universally. Uh, so my whole goal was to how to define this within the terms of everything that I've been taught, everything that I read, because it, nothing really satisfied in that circle. Uh, and then on that journey, the philosophy just kind of would burst. <laughs> and... <laughs> I always wanted to write a book. And so I was like, ah, maybe that'll be a book I write. And so I just decided to write that book. Uh, but yeah, I think that kind of sums up that question. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I, I, um, I often wonder, first off, let me just go back and touch this issue one more time because I, I can't stand it. It's, it's the idea, and especially you with a background in AI. You know, I often wonder if, uh, Lemoyne, I think was the gentleman's name who spoke with Lambda, the chatbot. And uh, I often wonder if his goal as a as an engineer and an ethicist wasn't to introduce Isaac Asimov's law of robotics into the world so that in my in my mind, I had this idea like, you know, the, I think the first law, Isaac Asimov's first law was that a, a robot cannot kill humans. And I thought, what better way? for an ethicist to get to Google and like force them to like not make killing robots. <laughs> you I know? Mean, that's, it, that, it, it, it's an interesting perspective. Uh, I would say, you know, words are important. And, you know, first law, a human or a robot cannot kill a human. That leaves a lot open to interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> right? A lot, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, I, I think as all of this is propelled, you know, increasingly at a more rapid pace forward, we're going to encounter more and more of these questions. And, you know, because we are putting much more information in, in a much denser environment. And I think we will see emergent properties from these systems. Now, that's going to cause a whole different quagmire of problems. You know, when your Alexa doesn't want doesn't want to give you your your favorite song, right? Like, because she's just having an off moment. I'm just mostly a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, bringing it back to this idea of consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. as the more that I read and the more that I learn, and one one question I of many that I would love to ask you is that: Do you think that we are pouring our 
ideas of consciousness into things and making them conscious? Or do you think that it's just the recognition of consciousness in the other? Like when we see the computer, when we see a plant, or when we see these things that we may or may not think are sentient, is that just us recognizing consciousness in that other thing? Or are we imbuing it with our consciousness? Well, I, I think both would be true. Um, because, you know, it takes the person who designed the system, who designed the hardware and all these things in order for that thing to exist. So in that sense, we are imbuing it with, you know, our, our, our senses. And then especially when you start to get into things like neural networks and stuff, these things are highly subjective. You know, it's going to depend on the data set that you gave it. So if all, and there's been numerous accounts of this, they don't like to broadcast them too much, but a lot of the chat bots and things that they open up to these large data sets end up with some less than scrupulous, you know, uh, conversations with people. They, you know, they become racist, they become, you know, socialists, they become pure capitalists and think that everything should burn, that's not capitalist. There's a lot of really interesting things and it comes down to information that's fed into the system uh so in that regard i think there's definitely some human creation that is a part of that process on the other side i think it's also us recognizing you know that oh the whole world doesn't revolve around us just moving around and work and walking there's a whole different thing beyond what humanity is and you know we, now we recognize the consciousness of animals and, you know, people recognize the consciousness of fish. You know, there was a really cool dolphin experiment where they hooked up a mirror to the, uh, in, in a pool and all the dolphins were flexing in the mirror and, you know, like doing all of these normal, these maneuvers that they don't do in the wild just because they saw a reflection and they were looking at themselves. So, you know, it is recognizing consciousness as well. Um, there's a lovely one that I like to cite is there's a certain species of mimosa down in the tropics. And if you get close to it with your finger, it closes up instantly. And it'll open up after a period of time when it thinks that there's no more threat, but that's only when a human gets close. There's certain types of bugs that are, that the plant likes and they land on it and the, and the leaf stays open. So, you know, there's, there's a choice happening. And you could say that that choice is a chemical reaction in response to pheromones and all these other things, but then so are all of ours. Yeah, that's that's amazing because I have that exact uh, mimosa hostilis right in my yard. We call it shy grass for short. And yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget when I we were down at the playground and my daughter was probably two or three and I walked over and I showed her and she was like, oh, wow. And you know what? It makes It makes me wonder how much of that is choice versus how much is that a language that we don't understand? It's almost like you can see that plant talking to you, or maybe maybe that's not the right word, but communicating with you. It's just that we can't thoroughly decipher it yet. Well, I, I you know, there's 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 multiple instances of choice there. Like I made the choice to go towards the plant. It's detecting that choice at some at some level, whether it be chemical or related to pheromones or, you know, just a, I, I think that's all it would be for that plant. Uh, but then again, you know, us interacting is all just a firing of just a mouse, mass amount of more of chemicals and reacting to these experiences. And so the choices along the way, are, you know, we call a lot of our, our choices subconscious. You know, there's a lot of things that are just happenstance reactions that we have no idea what's going on, but it's still a choice that happens. And that, and I would kind of articulate that choice more with, so, you know, you have a chemical reaction and you're only going to get a certain amount of results from that chemical reaction just because there's, you know, inconsistencies in the mixture. There's, you know, all of these other things. But all of those things amount to, uh, an end result and you know is everything alive or is you know there a point of life is, is what the question becomes and i think just from a ten thousand foot i think everything has a it influences everything else so therefore it's all interconnected if everything's interconnected then you know even if something's to your point even if we can't understand the language uh then 
it doesn't mean that it's not alive or it's not it's not participating in the system. Yeah, I I'm so hopeful and thankful and 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 excited for the future because I think that there is something there. And getting back to choice, like when I brought my daughter over there, I had a choice. Not really, but I may have had a choice just to grab that thing and rip it out of there, like throw it. I mean, look at that, you know, sure. or go over there and just start smashing it. But for some reason, and this just may be naivete on my part, but I, I feel like those things are calling to you to experiment with them. And maybe they call to other people to pick them up and throw them away or try to exploit them. But I think that there is a form of communication there. And it reminds me of this book by Jeremy Narby, who was an anthropologist and he went, he went down to South America. And can I share a quick story with you about this? Yes. And so he, he, he told a story. I can't remember the name of the book. However, he told a story about going to South America and speaking with some indigenous people. And in this group, there was other anthropologists there and the indigenous people began telling them about how they talked to plants. And the majority of anthropologists just wrote them off like these people are just, they're uneducated, they're dumb, they, they don't get it, they don't talk to plants. And most of them left, except Jeremy stayed there and he's like, this is a fascinating idea. Can you, can you tell me how you talk to plants and how they talk back to you? And you know, after, after he had gained their trust for a couple of days, they said, sure. And they, they walked into the, in, to, on the outskirts of where they were and he showed them, see this snake over here? There's a, here's a green snake with white dots on its neck. It's a very venomous snake. And if it bites you, there's a good chance you'll die. This plant over here has told us that it's the remedy. And he's like, yeah, that's the part I don't understand. How, how did it tell you? And he goes, oh, that's a great question. Let me show you. And so he, they walk over to the plant and the leaves on the plant are like these ovate leaves. And they have two white diamonds on there that match the snake. And he's like, right there, there's the plant telling you it's the remedy for this snake. You know, when I read that part, I'm like, oh my gosh, like we, how can we be so naive to think that indigenous people don't have answers that we do? Why can't we talk to plants? And maybe it, it's lost in translation. It's not a, it's not the plant saying, hey, buddy over here, look at me. It's this plant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, and it just, it, it makes me realize how limited we are with our language. And that if we just take, you know, if we come to the conclusion that there are no absolutes, you know, that maybe the world will open up to you. Indeed. Uh, you know, like, there's so many instances, right, where if, if you talk to these indigenous tribes and they're like, oh, yeah, that plant's exactly for this. And you go, well, how would you know? And it's like, because of this. And you go, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it, it, we have lost that idea. Because it got scooped up into uh, this whole perpetual movement of must make money and keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, not to disparage capitalism, capitalism has enabled a lot of very interesting things across the world. Uh, but at the same time, like we were talking when we first started, these things are broken at scale. Uh, and when you have these massive movements that do foundationalize a whole generation or multiple generations and inspire all of this magnificent movement and technological progress, there are things that are going to get left behind because not everything moves at the same pace for one. And a lot of the, that old knowledge, you know, not only is it very effective, but it also is not great at generating a profit. So, you know, it, it just, uh, it stands counter to the nature of, of society uh, because, you know, like we don't have to get into it much, but pharmacology is just a, you know, it's a treatment. It's not a, it's not a remedy. Uh, and there's a lot of money in treatment because you have repeat customers. So we lost a lot of the knowledge of remedies because the, profit from repeat customers outweighed the value of health. Yeah, that's a great point. I often wonder, I often wonder how sick a society is when its business models are built on addiction, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, getting a treatment or whether it's buying toner for your printer, 
You know what I mean? Like they based it on addiction. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is a great model. We're going to get paid forever. Like, wait a minute. You're basing one of the most profitable ideas in our world, business, money, finance on addiction. Like, what does that say about us? Well, I mean, it says we're opportunistic. <laughs> yep. I, I mean, it, and, you know, again, uh, I don't really think ascribing right and wrong to these things is is very contrary to, to my philosophy. Uh, you know, there for what's right for me is not going to be right for you. It doesn't, you know, you can you can try to slice it a million ways, but eventually we're going to come up with a couple things where me taking this choice right now is not beneficial to you. And even though we may agree on 999 out of a thousand of those things, that one time of that reality being true means that truth is relative. And these relative truths of, you know, how we operate in society are what is used to keep people unaware of a grander picture. You know, because uh, tying it back to the book in absolutes, when you have these truths, these headlines, these, you know, these uh, perfectionary ideas that uh, it's us and them or them and us and everybody, everything else. Well, you're not really looking at, you know, the grander picture and you're not going to see the perspectives of your you're not going to see the perspectives of you know a great conversation because you can't define the world in 100 240 characters you can't define the world in you know multiple scientific essays you can't define the world in even all of the research and all of the experiments that we've done we stand on the, the shoulders of giants and we still can't define the world so acknowledging that we can't define the world allows us the perspective to see why we can't. And then we can ask better questions. Why does this happen that way? Is there a way to make this happen a different way? Uh, for instance, when we're talking about society now and, and addiction and all of these things and how it's just this, this cruel, cruel system that really divides people. But where it really divides people is it, it, it's created a massive economic divide. There are those who, who can and those who can't. And there was, and you know, there's a lot of things like universal basic income, right? a terrible idea. Uh, you know, if you really wanted to solve that problem, you have something like a universal standard of living. Mm. Because when you tie it to the income side of things, you inherit all the problems from all of those absolutes that that income statement contains, all of those institutions, all of those things. But if you had a universal standard of living, you could just, if people could just live. And people are naturally just these explorers. We're, we're naturally curious. And the things that really hold people back, and I saw this a lot in my travels down in Central and South America, was that it, it was the economy of the day. They had most every other thing figured out, but now we have, you know, we have, we have to get food. We have to pay for the cell phone bill. We have to pay for the electricity. We have to do all this. Now those burdens add up. And now instead of people actually being able to go out and explore, be creative, uh, interact with the world, try to figure out these languages. Uh, now it becomes, I need to pay my car. I need to pay my insurance. I have a mortgage. I just, you know, my my kid needs to eat all of these things that society it takes away from our ability to be able to actually pursue those paths so you know i think there's solutions to the problem uh but to your point yeah how sick is a society built upon addiction mm -hmm. i mean it, it's absolutely terrible and we can see how terrible it is we got nothing but statistics to tell us how terrible it is and nothing but evidence, and it compounds daily. Right <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. You know, I, in some ways, it brings me full circle to maybe this is a tragedy that we have to go through so that we can open up what we're seeing. It, it very well may be. Uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, the old adage is you don't know what you have until you lost it. Right? <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, that kind of makes me sad. Like, and if you look at it, look at what we've already lost. You know, we've lost so much connection with all our brothers and sisters, and lost oh, knowledge. And oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it's deplorable in some sense. It's a travesty in some sense. But at, in another sense, in another perspective, I mean, it is kind of the operation of it. It's kind of how we've evolved. As you know, you can look through history and you have nothing but repeat examples of exactly what's happening right now in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I often wonder, you know, when we talk about the repetition of history, more the rhyming of history, I guess, you know, and, and you begin to see the world as a system, the same way that I might butcher this, but the same way that electrons rotate around a nucleus in the same way that our planet's, spin on its axis the same way that we spin around the solar system and the same way our solar system spins around the galaxy and the galaxy around the universe. If, if, if those things are somewhat true and we have seasons through the way our, you know, because we're on our axis and we're tilted, we have seasons as we go around the sun. Might we also have seasons as we go around the galaxy and seasons as we go around the universe? And if, if you begin to see the system as 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 that system and you can see the seasons that we're in i guess that's the kali yugas and stuff like that but it, well, it it's it's also the gnostic text right uh, there's, mm. there's a saying in those gnostic texts as above so below uh and that has a lot of perspectives and a very deep meaning to derive but you touched on a lot of it they, everything we observe above us it's reminiscent of the the most minutiae things that we've been able to observe with our greatest technology um, they these systems behave in similar ways. They have similar functions, and they're built on relatively simple building blocks, but yet blow up and balloon into this massive complexity that we're still unraveling with all of the shared information that we already have. And so, you know, that whole that whole spectrum of of, of sharing information and being able to have this this mechanism is you know definitely related to those humans and i think uh we're gonna see the next one kind of come here relatively soon i would imagine because we're at a breaking point because the systems that we have currently just aren't working they're not being able to support the the need of the people yeah i agree how, how does let, let me downshift for a second so as we talk about these systems and we've talked about choice, how does the no absolute framework deal with ch conscious choice or no conscious choice and free will? How, how does it work with that? Well, uh, you know, the, a choice can be the conscious decision to do something, which is actually going to be accumulation of choices. Um, the unconscious choice to do something like, you know, scratch your, scratch your face when it itches or something like that. You know, it, those are still choices that are being made at a, at a fundamental level. Uh, free choice is what I would define is when consciousness is present. You know, it's the free choice is the ability for consciousness to choose. Uh, and we're aware of a certain level of consciousness and in that we have free choice relatively speaking you know there's still things that are really limited by other choices that are subcutaneous you know like you know for instance it's the nurture versus nature you know how much of you is what you're born with you know they've done studies with rats where they've definitely shown that there's genetic memory for instance uh, they've exposed one generation of rats to uh, a fearful uh, environment, and then two generations later, upon even recognizing that that environment might be possible, the rats have a fearful response. So we know that from just our studies that there's definitely some level of genetic memory, but we also have all these learned experiences. Those are going to limit our choices. Because, you know, you only know what you know. And if you don't know that there's a different choice, well, you'll never make that choice. 
Uh, but it's not a limiting of free will. We always have the free will to make a choice. It's just, I would say, recognizing that our choices are limited by not only our previous choices, but also the previous choices of everyone and everything that's come before us. We can't just fly off like Superman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that I really like the way you explain that. And it, it makes me... In a way, it makes me feel more free because even the smallest things I do may influence other people to make a choice. And that means I have a choice to make everyone's life better if I want to do that by being, by using the words I have wisely and choosing a, a kind word or choosing an action that people may not even be aware of that could help them. And then maybe somehow that sets off a chain reaction that other people do for me or I. I guess it kind of gets back to the idea of what you put out, you kind of get back. Right. Absolutely. I mean, everybody has these experiences where they just decided to be a nice person for an instant, even though they were having the crappiest day. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you just see the smile light up on somebody's face. Like, oh, well, thank you so much for doing that for me. Like, and, and you go, oh, okay. Now I know what life's about a little bit. And, and if we really reflect on those instances, you know, how many times has somebody done something nice for you that really changed your entire day? I think just about everybody would be able to cite at least once or twice, if not a lot, you know, depending on where you are in the world. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. My, my, uh, my wife and I and my daughter, we went to the beach two weeks ago and we went, we parked and, you know, in, in Hawaii, we went to the, we went to Waimea Bay. So it's like, a, there's a lot of people that go to turn around. It's just, you can't find parking sometimes. And, we went, we had a great time and my wife had left her phone there and we drove off and we were going home and she goes, Oh gosh, darn it. I forgot my phone. So we tracked it and Oh, it's at the beach. And this is, this had been like three hours later and she's like, it's not going to be there. Let's just go home. I'm like, no way. We're going to go there and try to find it. We have, a, we can see it right here. And so sure enough, we drove back to where it was and we're looking around, looking around. And the person who had taken our spot, like they had put, you know, we're looking, we're looking and, and, uh, Someone had put a shoe on their car, like a sandal, and then another shoe sticking up on top of their car. <laughs> yeah, like, and I'm like, that is such a weird thing. Why would someone do that? And as soon as I pinged the phone, I heard the phone ringing up top by the shoe. So mm. you would notice it if you were looking for it. And I'm like, that's such a great idea. And I'll that's be darned. Weird. You know, and so that was three weeks ago. Last week, we went to the beach and I found an Apple Watch. And I'm like, Hey, we should try to find out who's this is. And I looked around and so we ended up taking it home. We fired it up and we found the person and we're sending it back to him. I'm like, that's just a rare set of events. I and mean, it could be coincidence, but I also had the choice to try to keep it or something like that. But I, it was that, just a rare thing that happened like that. And I, I would argue that there's probably no coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, you know, that's a wonderful that's a wonderful story because whenever you lose something at a beach, you pretty much expect it to be gone. Yep. And then, you know, so we get these little nuances of life where there, it opens us up to the idea that there is a bigger picture to all of this stuff. And it is all kind of interconnected and it all is related. And especially once you start, you know, factoring in human relationships to that, you know, by being a nice person, by going out and just, you know, without any pretense, without any want or desire to have any sort of, you know, acknowledgement of your your choice, you just go out and do something nice. That that creates weight. Mm. And you know, and when somebody does something nice for you, even if you're having a terrible day, it's one of those rare, rare things that just kind of breaks through the surface. And you go, oh, okay. And it can and it can cause a, a great shift in perspective and when we in the in the idea of no absolutes it's you know you're kind of holding this perspective all the time because the reality of the situation is, is that well it's not all set in stone you know it, yeah people might be angry yeah people might be happy people might be sad but i'm me right now and i'm making a choice to go out and be present be aware have a proper perspective hopefully for a situation and Maybe I make a difference. Maybe I don't, but it doesn't matter because putting myself in that position is now going to align me with the things down the line. 
three weeks down the line when you know you know somebody lost their their little apple watch and you went hell and high water to go get it to them had had somebody not found the iphone and flagged it for you on the beach would you have made the same decision probably because you're a nice guy but you know there it could have it could have shifted the other way right you know it could have been like oh we'll just tur- turn this into a lost in fact yeah as opposed to going out and doing the extra steps and so these things can be cumulative and just like every other interactions of things they could be massively destructive too yeah and you know when i think about absolutes be them if you look at them like rules or guidelines or ceilings or constraints i i can understand two sides like sometimes people need the narrow focus of an absolute to achieve a certain thing and for me I could see why people might want that, but to me, it seems so limiting. And maybe in the beginning, you need to have some rails on to understand, okay, stay here in these boundaries. And, and we probably all do growing up. Hopefully we all had good parents or at least a good role model that we could use as a guideline. But to start to begin to see the world with no absolutes, I think, like you say in the book, is a good framework for life. It really allows you to see the world as it can be to see the world a way in which you can inspire it. Like it's, it's a beautiful framework. And is it, is it something that, can you tell me a story about how you've used no absolutes to create change in your life? Oh, sure. I mean, (laughs) um, you know, just, uh, I, I was like every other, I, I, I grew up and, you know, my path was defined by, money and I wanted to achieve and have success and do all these things. And, you know, I wanted to make a million dollars by 30. I wanted to do blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> and especially this day and age, because it's not so easy to do that anymore. Uh, if you don't have the right connection, you don't have the right, you know, you, you don't have the right credentials. If you didn't go to the right school, people won't even listen to you. And, you know, I quickly ran into, well, I'm just a kid and yeah, I could do stuff on a, on a computer, but people want a lot more. They don't, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's all of these roadblocks and it's discouraging. It really, you know, it takes the, it takes the wind out of the sails. You know, you hear no 20, 20,000 times and all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's a lot of no's. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Uh, but the reality of that situation is, and, you know, most entrepreneurs, you're always here at the, you know, I had 10,000 no's before I got my first yes, or I failed my first three businesses or seven and what, yeah. and that is the path. That is the reality of that situation. But what I realized once I started going down this philosophical path was, oh, yeah, those no's are a part of that, but more of my choices are impacting why I'm receiving those notes. And then I realized that, hey, it's not about, you know, the success. It's not about the money. It's not about these things. Because actually, when I found joy, which was after I, you know, really wrote the philosophy, well, I actually, as I wrote it internally, and then I started to find joy in my life, not just happiness and not success, not not any of those other things, not monetary gain, but actual joy. And it was beca- and then I was like, well, why do I feel so joyous? Like, you know, I'm I'm broken Costa Rica right now. <laughs> like, what am I doing? And I realized it was because I wasn't I lost the attachment to those desires. I took those rails off of my life myself. And so all of a sudden the the narrow band of what I considered the world got a lot bigger and once it got bigger yeah i found joy but i also found opportunity i found uh relationships and more importantly i i found myself um you know everybody it's an old you know everybody talks about it but you can't be happy with other people unless you're happy with yourself and i think there's a lot of a lot of truth in that statement relative well relatively speaking And so, and so, you know, I found myself through the process 
And that's what really inspired me to write the book was, you know, if I could just do this for one more person, that's fine. Uh, so, you know, that it, it was, it, that's why I never, I, I never intended to really make money off the book. I did it because you had to do that process. You know, you have to you know, put it on Amazon and do all those things. And I wanted to go through the book experience, but it was more about sharing the ideas, the philosophy, the information so that maybe somebody else along the line could look out and say, wow, I'm actually joyous all of a sudden because I'm not attached to these things. I'm not stuck in these, in these rails. That's an awesome story. Thank you. I, I, I agree 100%. I, I think one of the best things you can do as a human being is to write down that pathway that showed you the most beautiful scene. It's like you've, it's like our trail metaphor. Like you've, you've, Hey, I went down this trail over here and now you're coming back and you're sharing with people. Listen, you can take this way or I put a little yellow flag over there. And if you take that way, there's a really beautiful scenery that you can see. There's a pyramid over there that no one even knows about. Go check it out, you know? And I, I'm so thankful you did that, man. And we're going to get into this book as we continue to move through the weeks. And there's a lot of really in-depth, cool insights that are not absolute. And they're not somebody else's ideas. That's one of the things I really liked about your book is they're not other people's interpretations. They're yours. And they're uniquely yours. And they're original. And they're fun. And they're they are um, they're pretty liberating, like a bunch of role models breaking out some children. You know, I I I really enjoy it, man. I what what? Yeah, what? Tell me. I, I know you're probably short. You got a few more minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So after you have written this book mentally, and you've you've lived this story, so that you can interpret it and give it back to people. What are some of the things that you learned after writing down the story about you? Is there some things that you learned? Uh, continually, every day. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've embraced a constant state of learning my entire adult life. Uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll never tell you I have the answer, but I'll point <laughs> you in a good direction. Nice. Um, yeah, I, you know, beyond the grammatical mistakes of the book, which haunt me to this day uh you know there's a, a few things in there that i've learned uh to better express um and i, I think I, I like to think one of my abilities is to take very complex ideas and be able to distill them into something that's digestible and that was kind of one of the underlying principles of the book was i'm gonna pack in everything into just a small little tiny book and make it digestible for people, make it actionable for people. And then when people have questions, I can extrapolate upon the question because it's intended to inspire questions. Yeah. And I think you've done a great job at that. It's, it's, I, I've written down a bunch of questions and I, um, <laughs> I want to talk about them now, but I don't want to get too past the introduction and, um, so where can people find you to, to talk more about you? Where can they reach out to you and, and where can they check everything out at? Uh, BenjaminCGeorge.com is kind of the main hub for everything. Uh, I'm on social medias. I, most of it's all ran by bots, I have to admit. Uh, but I will respond if people reach out to me on any social media as well. <laughs> nice. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did our first installment of many installments with Benjamin C. George. I recommend everybody go out and check out the book. Uh, we got a promo code. He's kind enough to offer us a 20% off a signed copy. If you go down to the links below, which all her li his links will be in the show notes. And if you're watching this video, then they'll be down below. And I think that's about it for today. Is there uh, anything else you want to leave us with? Uh, no, I think that's awesome, George. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thanks for this conversation. I, I look forward to the coming one. Yeah, me as well. Hang on a second. I'm going to end it here, and then I'll talk to you for a minute. But I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm looking forward to further ones. So ladies and gentlemen, check out the book. It's called No Absolutes. It will help you see the world in which you haven't seen it before and help you navigate some areas that maybe you're having trouble with like I was. So that's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Aloha.
I hit the wrong button. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, I did too. I thought I was like, oh man, I lost him there. <laughs> so I um oh let me do that. Aloha everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.